0: Good morning. I'm glad you guys are here on the last Sunday of 2019. I was talking to my wife this morning, and I find it interesting that I didn't even realize it's the end of a decade, not just the end of a year. We're just barely making it to the end. I teach elementary school. I teach fifth grade as my day job. And when you're in a room full of 11-year-olds, you're just waiting for those two weeks off at there. You get to those last couple days. You're not thinking long-term. you're just thinking, "How can I get day to day?" And we've made it. We made it past Christmas, guys. We got to the end of the year. Some of you barely. Some of us are dragging there. Some of us have family and friends that are dragging us to the line, but we're going to make it to the end of the line. And when we look at the end of the year, generally what happens at that point is we stop and reflect. We look at what happened up to this point, and we look to where we're going. And a majority of the American nation actually makes these things called resolutions, apparently. I don't do it. But there are people who make these New Year's resolutions. 60% according to the statistics I saw, 60% of them of Americans will make New Year's resolutions this year. Listen to the top 10 from last year. Diet, exercise, losing weight, saving more and spending less, learning a new hobby, quitting smoking, reading more, finding another job, drinking less, and at the bottom of that top 10 is spending time with family and friends. So those are the top 10 that people made in 2019. And of those 60% that actually make these um, New Year's resolutions... 8% they say and i'm sure that 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 might not even that might be high 8% actually do most of them by the end of the year why is it that we don't follow through i think a lot of us get frustrated with them that's part of me is it becomes Why isn't this happening? Why why would you want to do this? It becomes almost legalistic, like I have to do these things. But if you look at that first part of that list I said, diet, exercise, these are all self things, things you're doing for yourself. And I really believe there's nothing wrong with making New Year's resolutions. I think a lot of it has to come down to your motives, the reasons why you do what you do. Um, Some of these rely on ourselves or our own strength. They focus on ourselves rather than others. I think a lot of these things do that. So it's motive. And again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't make goals. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with changing your health, wanting to do better financially. But I think your motives need to be there in order for it to go long term. And it is a good thing. Uh, Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Paul talks about this, these goals being a good thing. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing wrong with making that goal, but the goal is ultimately his glory. The goal is that finish line. And that's the motive that we're looking for. Um, Paul realized that life here is short. And so our focus needs to be sharp. Our priorities and our motives need to be honed in to do that. Jonathan Edwards, um, 18th century preacher. You probably know him because you sat in a history class? English class. An English class and read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You, most of you did. I didn't because I don't think I went to school at that time apparently. Oh, honors. That's why. It's an honors class. That's why I didn't know that one. Um, I read it as an adult. Um, but he, before he wrote that, he wrote these 70 life goals. And so I want to read you just a couple. I'm not going to give you the whole list of 70. Um, Just a couple. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Um, Resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Uh, Res- Resolution 58, he resolves not only to refrain from an air of dislike, fretfulness, and an anger in conversation, but to exhibit an air of love, cheerfulness, and benignity. These goals that he wrote for himself, in them you can see him pursuing something beyond just himself. He's, per- he's pursuing God's glory. Um, in the one of, number 67, he says, resolved after afflictions to inquire, what am I the better for them? What good have I got by them? And what might I have got by them? He, he's even wanting to examine his sufferings and afflictions. Where am I growing from that? And as we drop into our passage today, we see P- Peter is guiding us kind of to a resolution. I and mean, it's kind of fitting that we land here on this last Sunday. Um, but he's guiding his readers towards this. Resolutions that become part of our lifestyle. That can only be done through the strength of the Holy Spirit that can refocus on God and his glory rather than us and our glory, which is where we tend to do a lot of that. These are life resolutions that we're going to kind of look at today. Um, If you haven't been with us um, on the Sundays I get to preach we've been going through the book of First Peter, and we are now hitting this crescendo. We're getting to right here where he kind of is bringing it all in to the to finish, and then we're going to slowly work down. So this is, this is where he's kind of giving everything. Um, this is a letter that was written to Christians who were in exile, scattered all over, who were going through or would be going through persecution for their faith. The suffering that he talks about in First Peter is, in context, speaking specifically of persecution for their faith, for what they believe, for the fact that they stood out and said, I am a believer. It doesn't mean that some of these things can't be applied to other suffering, but when we talk about this suffering, we're speaking specifically about your suffering as a a believer and for what you believe. Um, He started out the letter by reminding them of their identity in Christ, who they were. And then through that, he called them to stand up and to continue to live on mission in spite of this persecution, where a lot of us would crumble under that kind of persecution and stop. He's saying, press on you're persecuted, and you will continue to live on mission. You're not going to turn inward and focus on your suffering. You're going to press on and be on mission. Um, and so as we, enter the, as we enter the text today, you see us beginning to wrap up this main part. So we're going to read together 1 Peter 4, 1-11. through 11. If you guys would stand with me as we read this, we do so often stand for other things. We stand for our favorite musician. We stand for our favorite sports team. We stand for something exciting that goes on and we sit for the reading of God. This is the inspired word of God, living and active. It's, it's useful for us. And so this is how God communicates to us. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can look on your phone or we'll have it up on the screen as well. I'm going to read through this First pass this first part of the past we're gonna do one through eleven today. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. "'For there has already been enough time spent "'in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, "'carrying on in unrestrained behavior, "'evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, "'carousing, lawless idolatry. "'They are surprised that you don't join them "'in the same flood of wild living, "'and they slander you. "'They will give an account to the one "'who stands ready to judge the living and the dead.' For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that, all, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to the human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we enter your word, I pray that you would put me far, far away in the words that I share and the words that I speak are your words, that you would help me forget the things that are not, your desires, the things that are sinful, the things that are in me. And I pray that what would come out of me are your words, your, the things you have taught. I pray for those who are here today and who are listening, that their ears would be open, that their hearts would be open, that you would um, encourage those that need encouraging, convict those that need conviction. And I pray that ultimately you would receive all the glory today. In your name we pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. So as we look back On who we are in Christ as believers, this is kind of our chance to look at maybe making life resolutions. And these would be long-term things, not the short one-year resolution. We're saying, how would we look at our life? Um, How have we lived so so far as believers? And how are we going to then live as believers? Sorry. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of doubt, Peter is calling us to these. And it's not a list of law. We, we remind you this all the time, but our, our hearts so quickly turn to this. Our hearts so quickly turn to take a list like this and make it rules that Jesus would be pleased with us. If we follow these rules, God will love us more. You can't do that. There's nothing you can do that will make him love you anymore. So this is not a list of laws I'm going to talk to you about that you see in Peter. These are responses because we have a great God, a God who saved us. And so as we look at this list, this we want to remember that, that this is something that is coming out of um, from a, a loving father who has rescued us from our sins. And this is our response. So I have five resolutions that I see in the text. Um, the first one is to take Jesus' attitude towards suffering. The next one is to set um, a course for our lives away from sin. The next one is to stay alert, in pr- to pray, to keep loving each other, and to glorify God in everything we do. So let's jump into the text and get going on this. Um, the first one I, ha- I see that the Christian should resolve to take Jesus' attitude towards suffering. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, if we look back to You'll see that it tells us, that passage that we just finished before we got to this text, you see that he starts to talk about how Jesus suffered in the flesh. So he's, that therefore is telling us, we're going back to that and reminding, because that ends with vindication and glory. You see the picture of Jesus victorious sitting, reigning on the throne with his father. So he's reminding you, therefore, since Christ did suffer in the flesh, reminding ourselves that he was human that he was also God, that he suffered. Because sometimes when we get into suffering of any kind, we instantly go, like I said, back into us. No one understands this. No one understands my suffering. No one knows what it's like to go through sin like this. Let me read you something, a list of sufferings that he went through from his birth to his death. He suffered an uncomfortable and unsanitary birth in a stable. From day one, we see suffering. He suffered the terror of fleeing for his life as an infant. He suffered the trials of growing and learning as a boy. He suffered powerful temptation. He suffered exposure to disease. He suffered homelessness. He suffered hunger. He suffered sadness and grief. He suffered disloyalty and betrayal. He suffered physical pain. He suffered disrespect and mockery. He suffered misunderstanding and misrepresentation. He suffered the emotional pain of the rejection of his father. He suffered punishment for the sins of others. He suffered injustice. He suffered violence. He suffered death. He suffered the full range of hardships of life in a fallen world. He suffered these things. These are the things that we think he can't identify with. He suffered them when he was here. So we need to remember that we do not have an unsympathetic Savior. We have a Savior who understands the sufferings we go through. It says, "Because since he suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. The understanding of Christ. Because the one who suffers in the, in the flesh is finished with sin. Um, when we see suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, when we read that at first, that one kind of throws us. Because Are are you saying that as a believer I should be done with sin and I don't sin anymore because I'm pretty sure I sinned on the way to church. So maybe I'm not saved. If you look at Romans 6, 6 and 7, I'll just read it to you. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. In our union with Christ, when we stand up and say we are, we are Christians, um, we, are, we will face suffering. And we, we see that in this, that once we have died with Christ, we die daily to our sins. But it's not something, as long as we are here on this earth, we are in, a, in, in the flesh, we will have temptations, we will battle sin. But through the Holy Spirit, we can be done with it. We can resist through his strength. And so when we see that that one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, we see that's our old self. Our old self is battle is, is accepting the sin. Our new self can fight the sin, can resist the sin through the Holy Spirit. When we when we become converted, I guess is the best way to say, we die to sin. Our desire to sin should start to slowly ebb away. We fight it daily but we know that there is something that we're straining toward. His death on the cross gave us freedom from that. It doesn't mean we don't battle it. It doesn't mean, I mean, you you gotta know that we're going to battle it. Our hope is eternity where there is no sin. Peter reminds us of our past and then the present for those who don't have that saving relationship. They don't have the ability to resist that. So, like I said, right before that, we see that there is this victory. And then we see that Jesus suffered before that and then was victorious over that. And in this, when we step into it and say we are believers, there is a very strong chance if we are doing that we will suffer for our faith. We will suffer in some way. And it may be minor, and it could be major. I mean, it could be that all the way to the loss of life or to just an inconvenience in the way people treat you. But he understands that. He understands the way that we are being rejected in that. He's reminding us of that. In Mark 8, he promises that if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. We need to have his attitude. We cannot be surprised in the fact that we are suffering because of what we believe, because he did. We don't respond against that because we know that will ultimately be, be taken care of and we'll hit that in the next section. Our responsibility is to press on and not shut down because of that. He suffered. We now know because of that our Savior has suffered. We, we can suffer and see the future and, the, and know that it is not permanent. Okay, so the second one would be resolve to set course of our lives away from sins of this world. So we said that we are freed from sin and now we're saying to set our, in, on our way away from that. Look at 2 through 6. In order to live, well, let's, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 1. It says, arm yourself with the same understanding as Christ. And then it jumps down. We're arming ourselves in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So we're arming ourselves with that same understanding, that's kind of like a military word, we're equipping ourselves with the understanding that Christ have, so that we can live the remaining of our time here in the flesh, as long as we're here, as long as we live here on earth, no longer for our own desires, no longer for our sinful desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent doing what the Gentiles choose to do. And then he gives a list of what we were like before and what sinners are doing currently He goes through it. He says, unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. That's who we were. Clearly he is reminding us as the readers that we lived before conversion in the flesh. That that is what we did. But they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. When we step out there, And we live differently. We're not getting in their face necessarily, telling them you're insane, you're doing something wrong. We're just not doing what we used to do. We're we're just not doing what they are doing, living those things like that. They slander me. Understand that when you live godly lives, when you live to live pure lives, that's a condemnation to their way of living. Just by living that out just by not doing what they do, you are condemning them. And that's why they come at you. In some of your your Bible translations, it may say maligning you, slandering you. You're being persecuted for that because in their mind, this is it. You only live once. This This is all you've got. Why not enjoy it? Why not feel good? Do whatever that makes you happy. You're going to only be able to go till the end, and then you're dead in worm food. There's nothing more. Enjoy it while you're here. And when you say, no, I choose to live this way, they slander you. They malign you because of your belief that there is something more. There is future judgment coming. The next two verses really kind of respond to that. He says they're surprised that you don't join them, and they slander you. And then these next two verses are really an encouragement. The first one is verse 5. They will give account for the one who stands ready to judge, to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a judgment coming for all of us. Romans 14, 11 through 12 says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God everyone, even if you say God is dead, there is no God, I don't believe it, you will be at your knees saying these praises to him when there is a realization of who he is, when you see him in his glory. Both doesn't matter where you land. We all will face that. When we are feeling like, man, these people, they live this horrible life. They persecute me for this And they're doing well. They're prospering. Look at that. They have a beautiful family. They have a beautiful house. Look at their car. Their job's doing well. They seem to be doing well on the outside. In this vapor we call life, they are. But in eternity, they are not. There is a judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9 says, Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So remember, these are people who are being maligned. These are people who are being slandered, persecuted. It is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. I know that doesn't sound like comfort, but when you're in the midst of it and you want to strike back, understand there is an eternal judgment, which is much better than anything you would ever do. You are to understand as an encouragement here, they have to give account for that. And their account may be while they're alive or while they're dead, but there will be an account given. Verse 6 is, is a weird kind of um, encouragement. When I read it the first time, I'll read it to you. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are dead now. Hang on. I'm trying to go back through my Bible and figure this out. I don't remember the get out of jail free card. I don't remember the second chance. I'll live my life however I want, and then God will send Jesus to preach to me when I'm dead, and I'll be like, yeah, you know what? You were right. I get it. I'll go back. I just don't see that anywhere in the text, so it can't mean that. So as I look at it a little closer and I started reading and I talked to Pastor Israel and we were batting this around and looking into this, this is a tough one. People have have discussed this for a long time. So look at verse four again. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. For this reason, they're giving an account, the gospel was was also preached to those who are now dead. The gospel— was preached not will be preached to those who are now dead was preached to those who are now dead when you and I face persecution or just die to the world death seems like some kind of a judgment if we if we murder someone and we're put to death that's a judgment for our our actions and so the world can look at our actions and say You know what? That person lived that way. They died. They were judged for it. But he tells us here for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, that's how the world sees that death, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. So when you die, and especially if you die at the hands of your persecutor, it's not a judgment. You are going to live in the spirit according to God's standards. That's how he sees this, this eternal picture. We we see a temporal, you're dead, it's over, versus an eternal. Spend life, the rest of existence, sorry, not life, the rest of existence, eternity, next to Jesus, reigning alongside him as a son. That's this is a really difficult passage, but when you look at it as an encouragement, that first, don't worry about that that slander that you're getting because they have to face an account. And if you do die, the gospel was preached to you that you accepted the call. You will live life eternally with him in the Spirit. So, when, we have to, when it says that we're steering our lives away from these sins, these sins that we talked about up here, the, the carrying on of unrestrained behavior, the evil desires, the drunkenness, the orgies, the carousing, the lawless idolatry, we want to live in a way that is different than that. We want to turn away from that because as we said in verse 1, that we suffer and we are, we are freed from sin. We are, we have the ability to turn away from that. How do we do that? Well, we do that by being in the word. We do that by being around God's people. We developed branch groups here, which are community groups or small groups, you've all seen them in different ways. But we have those here. That's a place where we gather together and we encourage and love one another. We point each other towards um, the right living. We convict we not convict. We um, confront those people who are not living rightly, in order to bring them back to the fold. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 say, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. That's what we're doing. We're looking out for one another. We want to encourage good works. We want to stay away from the sin. We want to get on that straight and narrow and not in the ditches where it's dangerous. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. We don't want to be isolated. We want to be with other believers. We do this together as a family. We don't do this in isolation but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And that's what we do. We want to live life together, encouraging each other to set a course away from sin towards holiness. Um, Verse 7, we look to resolve to stay alert to pray. The end of all things is near. When I heard that phrase the first time as I was reading it, I had just watched this uh, documentary on Ghostbusters. I know this is very theological and deep. I don't want to take you too far down this rabbit trail. But if you've seen the movie, the original, not all the other stuff, there's a scene near the end <clears throat> where like, all of these horrible ghosts and things are going around and it just looks like the end is near. And you see all of these people holding signs, end is near, and you see chaos running amok. It's panic. It's nuts. That's what I think of when I think the end is near. How everyone else responds to that phrase. Therefore... Be alert and sober-minded. That's the opposite of the response that I picture when I hear the end is near. To be sober. Calm down. The end is near. Why? Why are we calm? It's normal Christianity. We have an understanding that this is not eternal, that Jesus will return, that there is a new heaven and a new earth, and we will spend eternity with him. We understand that. But there's an urgency in the end is near. There's an urgency to understand that you have friends and family people you know that do not know him. And when we talk to that judgment before, that account we have to give before, that should make you all the more aware of the urgency it is for you to keep your head, to be praying, to be sharing. Keeping your head is the better way of looking at alert and sober-minded. Keep it together. Don't lose it. We should be praying for those who don't know him. They were just like you. They were lost. They had no idea that they were lost. And they're headed for destruction. That should make you very aware of this and very desirous that God would change their heart and would call them to him. We should lead us straight to prayer. We should be aware of our own lives in this. We should be avoiding sin. We should be praying that our our sins are forgiven. We should be confessing sin. We should be aware of all those situations and staying alert in that because the end is near. Keep your head about it. Be aware of what that means. The fourth one is verses 8 through 10 which is that we resolve to keep loving each other. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins comes out of Proverbs ten twelve. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Love covers a multitude of sins does not mean that I just ignore your sin and it's okay because I love you. Continue to live in that sin. I love you. Now, love means we say something to them about that sin. But it means also that we don't hold that to them. We give them the benefit of the doubt. If they have a past that's a little shady, we love them and we give them the benefit of that doubt that says they have been forgiven, that they have turned their lives around. We don't search out ways to to destroy a fellow believer. We give them the benefit of their intention. We ask those questions. We don't instantly go to that. We are spending eternity with our brothers and sisters. We should learn how to interact nicely and in love. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. These next two verses really have to do with a way of showing love. Hospitality. Hmm. Not my best one. This was a convicting part for me. Um, I'm not the most... Well, I can be hospitable, but that second part just gets me every time. Without complaining. Ah! If I could just skip that, be hospitable, move on. Because the complaining part comes out of me. I don't. If you know me at all, this is not news, by the way. But it's a sin that I'm constantly battling, is this just nasty heart of mine. I have a house. I would like it to be a castle. I would like a moat around the outside of it. I would like many dangerous things in that moat. And I would like a very small drawbridge that moves quickly. That only lets one or two in at a time. Because that's my sinful heart that doesn't want to be around people, that doesn't want to love people. That is, that's my sin and my nastiness that comes out of it. He's right here is a horrible thing for me to hear. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. In other words, hey, Zetlo, you just got a house. Oh, by the way, my last name is Zetlo. I'm not just randomly calling out people. You just got this house. It has all these rooms and this amazing place to have people in. You should invite people in and not complain that they're there. You should invite people in and understand that those are your brothers and sisters, that Jesus loves them like crazy and how come you don't? That's what that says to me right there and that hurts. But let's be honest, we're not always hospitable without grumbling. But God gives every perfect gift, right? Everything that we have is because of him. That means my home, my car, my wallet, my pantry, you're going to eat my food? Yeah, that's all his. And I am to love you by being hospitable to you. In context of this passage, if people were traveling at that time, they didn't just go Airbnb. They didn't, you know, find a nice four-star hotel. They knew people, and they would stay with them. They didn't have church buildings like we have now with AC and lights and sound. They had, a bar, they had to meet in someone's house. That was someone had to open their doors and be hospitable and be okay that something got broken. That something got stained, that something gets taken, that something gets moved out of its perfect location. Yes, these are all the thoughts in my head, okay? That is hospitality, and that is hospitality without grumbling. If you are grumbling and you have them over anyway, that's not really hospitality. Come on in. Don't touch anything, please. What time do you have to leave? Do you have to go soon, right? Because you got to get going. I got to get to bed. Yeah, that's not loving God's people, and that's me. I'm confessing this right now in front of you that this is an area that I need to grow in. And lucky, God has given me an amazing wife who is pushing me in that direction. And so at some point, you will all be invited to my house because now I've opened my mouth widely and from the pulpit, and it's being recorded. All right. Um, Ouch. So we need to find a way, and honestly there is some searching of your heart that needs to be done and searching of my heart that needs to be done as to why I don't open, have hospitality. Some of us give the excuse, well, I just don't have a lot. Doesn't say that in here that it matters how much you have. You could be renting a, a, sharing a room with someone and you could be hospitable. If someone needs something, you, you can offer it to them. So that's being hospitable. And then in verse 10, he says, just as one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards. And that's what we're talking about in this whole thing. Whatever you have, you should use to serve others. And there are a lot of people in this church who do that so very well. Um, And the final resolution that he's calling us to in the midst of all this persecution, in the midst of this suffering, is that we are to glorify God in all that we do. All of this stuff that we just talked about kind of leads to this benediction. This idea that we glorify God in all that we do. Verse 11 says, If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Um, this idea of speaking and serving, he's talking about that gifting that we just mentioned in, back in verse 10. Verse 10 talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts. If you are standing in front of a group of people, if you're standing up here and you're speaking, these should be the words and the intentions of God. If you are teaching a class, that should be the words and the intentions of God, not your own for your own purposes. And when you serve in any way at all, it's from the strength God provides. When we meet in the morning on Sunday mornings to pray for our teams that are serving here, we remind them, and remind one another that our serving energy and strength and ability comes from him. And that we should find joy in that. It, it sh- God needs to be glorified through that. If we look at what happens from the minute you drive in here at branches until you leave at the end of the day. You pull in and you notice that the lawns are mowed and the, 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 the grounds are kept. That's someone who serves us. You come in the front door and there's someone greeting you and there's, there's bulletins that have been copied. There's someone checking in your children. There's food to be eaten. There's coffee to drink. Communion has been put out. A band has prepared and is rehearsed and is using their gifts. There are people running sound, lights, the screen. There are, your children are being washed, protected, and taught. This place is safe and kept. There, there are things that are being done here. Those are being done out of people who are serving Out of the love of God for you, their love for him then exudes out to you because they respond in that way. If they do it out of their own desire, they will burn out. Sorry, that sounded really bad. If I just, (laughs) pausing at the wrong spot, they're not going to burn, but they will burn out. And I've seen it happen where people do it for their own self. If I do this, God will be so impressed with me, so I'm going to serve on all these teams, and they just burn out. They run out of energy, and they, they just, they're crushed. But when they're doing this and they serve out of giftings that God has given them and the desire to love God's people, it energizes them. You've all been gifted. As believers, you've all been gifted. You all have a gift. You may not know what it is. You may not even like that that's the gift that you've been given, but you have. And you're a part of the body. And as a part of the body, if you're not serving in that way, we miss it. I was thinking of an example of that. If you lost your sense of smell, It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. But think of the things you do with that. That's part of your taste. And so when you eat food, you don't have that same pleasure when you lose your sense of smell. You can't smell the amazing smells when you're outside enjoying nature. You don't get the opportunity to smell danger if something's on fire. Like you lose all that. And it's such a tiny thing we think of. That's the same kind of idea as when, if you're a part of a body and you're not serving with the gifts that you have, we need those gifts. We need you to be serving in that realm. So as one of your pastors and as Peter's saying, I'm exhorting, I'm exhorting you that if you're a part of our church and you're not serving in some way, talk to someone in the back at the table, at the connection table, see if there's an opportunity for you. Now, if some of your gifts don't necessarily need to be a part of a team. Some of you are amazing encouragers. You, you have a conversation, I've had conversations with several of you that when I walk away, I feel like God has personally given me a hug because it's just, you just exude his love. And that's an amazing gift. Continue to use that gift. But anyways, that's a little bit of a side trail. You do those gifts. You use those gifts in the strength that God provides because of what's been done for you. Um, when I get to this next part, we start to transition to this benediction idea, this sending, this blessing. And he goes out by sending it that way. So if you, if you look at the last part of verse 11— he um, says, So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. All the things that we've done up to this point, we do so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. We end with this blessing. Now he's not done with the letter yet, but he gets to this point where he just has to stop and say all of these things have to be done for his glory. That should be our life resolution is that everything we do is for the glory of God. The the idea that we understand the gospel well enough that everything we do is for his glory. That we acknowledge that we'd sin and that we rejected him. Yet he sent his son who had not sinned to live in the flesh and to go through all those sufferings we talked about to become a man and live a perfect life on earth, to suffer and to die for our rejection in order to pay the debt for that exact rejection. And that Jesus rose again victorious over sin and death. And that he reigns with his Father in heaven exalted. And that because of that work, we are seen as righteous by God and that we have been adopted and are joint heirs with Christ, and that we have a future hope beyond this broken, upside-down world that we live in right now that persecutes us for living a godly life. So in everything we do, everything we say, every person we interact with, that God receives all the glory. And that should be the direction of our life resolution. When we look forward from now until eternity, that everything we do gives glory to him because of the gospel. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to you. That we can come to you in prayer for those things that we need, for those who are lost. I thank you that you have sent your Son to die for the sins that we continually battle. I thank you so much for sending your Holy Spirit to come alongside and strengthen us as we battle those sins. That you've given us the Holy Spirit to to strengthen us as we serve you and the gifts that you've given us. But ultimately, I thank you so much that in everything that we do, we do that through you and that you should receive all the glory because you are so amazing, because you love us so much and the price that you paid to, see, to people who never even called out to be rescued and you rescued us. I pray as we move out of this decade into the next one, as out of this year into the next year, that we would remember that everything we do should give you glory. That it would be our life resolution, that we would do that in your strength. That we would love one another, that we would pray, that we would guide ourselves away from sin through being in community, through focusing on you and staying in the word. That all of these things that we do, our attitude towards suffering, would be done to give you glory. In your name we pray, amen.